This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. This week, my recommendation is How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And do I even have to say why? As our nation is still reeling from adding the murder of George Floyd to the lengthy list of African-American men and women killed by police in unjustified and unjustifiable encounters, it's still all too tempting for white people like me to just turn off the television and exercise our privilege of being able to ignore issues of race, which is exactly what keeps structural racism alive and well. Kendi's book offers readers, especially white readers, ways to understand the mechanisms of structural racism and concrete tools for taking action to actively build an anti-racist society. It's an important read for anyone, and if you're white like me, I think it's absolutely prerequisite. So what are you waiting for? To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 9, Accountability at a Crossroads. Before we begin, I just want to say that it's June 4th, 2020, as I'm recording this, and our nation is still reeling from the upsetting, infuriating, and terrifying reality of how racism is alive, well and deadly in the United States. I'll be adding more episodes on this topic soon, particularly how they intersect with issues of school and schooling. I'm still preparing those episodes, but I wanted to give you a heads up that yes, they are coming, and we are not going to ignore this issue in our podcast. For now, we'll be talking about changes in education due to the other terrifyingly transformative reality we're all dealing with, COVID-19. So, episode 9, Accountability at a Crossroads. The COVID-19 pandemic marks the first time since 2001 that high-stakes assessment and accountability measures for schools have been suspended. In other words, because of the crisis, state governments are not, right now, checking up on student learning or on schools' track record in helping students learn. This is actually a very big deal, as it's interrupted what has been the driving and structuring force of public education for the last 20 years. We go really deep into the history and structure of the outcomes-based movement in Season 1, Episode 3 of this podcast, and you can also find out more of the story in Season 1, Episode 1, and Episode 6, which is still our most downloaded episode. But I'll give you the really condensed version here. From the beginning of public education in the United States, we've never had a singular, national, or even state system of schools, but rather every town or locality creates, governs, operates, and funds its own school. They decide what's being taught and how, and they foot the bill through their property taxes. This is unlike every other country school system, by the way, and it means you get this wild patchwork quilt of dissimilar schools that teach different things and have vastly different amounts of money with which to teach those things to students. And, oh yes, with very few exceptions, students can only attend the school in the district or neighborhood where they live. 
and if you can't afford to buy or rent property in a wealthier place that has lots of money to pay for snazzy schools, you may well be stuck in poorly funded schools that often lack all the necessary resources to help you learn. About 60 years into this system, the federal government said, whoa, a high school diploma tells you nothing since there's so little consistency in how and how well schools actually prepare their graduates for the world beyond, and we need to change that, both for reasons of justice and equity, everyone should be able to get a fair shot at a good education, and for economic and scientific reasons, since fewer trained graduates means a less capable and successful nation. So 20 years after that, we get the Bipartisan No Child Left Behind Act of 2001, which changes the picture significantly. Sorry, no federal control of how and what schools teach or federal role in equalizing funding because that sounds too much like communism, and what every other country on earth does. And we're all about states' rights here, but darn it, each state at least had to come up with its own learning standards and make sure students graduated knowing at least that much. And each state from then on in would hold its schools responsible for doing that by instituting statewide standardized tests and rating and ranking schools by their students' test scores, intervening with punishments and even takeovers for schools that fail to prepare their students to meet those statewide standards. And by the way, in many if not most cases, schools don't get any extra money to do this. They just get held to the same standards, and if your school only has a $3 million budget to do that, and the school two towns over has a $20 million budget to do that, well, that's not our problem, says the state. Figure it out. We've got equity of expectations now, at least, and maybe someday equity of resources, and thus equity of outcomes might follow. In the meantime, though, schools live and die by those test scores, and so all teaching and learning, especially in schools afraid of not meeting those standards, gets reshaped around specifically preparing students to pass those tests. The outcome is what matters, and so you work back from the standard, as assessed by the test, to decide what you're going to teach and how to teach it. Whew. So now, all of a sudden, after two decades of this, in comes the novel coronavirus number 19, and upends the whole table on which the structure is built. No students in schools, and they can't be consistently or reliably taught remotely, so it's not really possible to accurately test them or their schools and hold everyone accountable for teaching and learning. So, uh, where the heck does that leave us now? Well, as we ponder the future of state assessments, both for students and schools in a post-COVID world, it might be useful to reflect back on just how those assessments have been functioning over the last two decades. Every state is different, of course, but we're going to look at Massachusetts here for several reasons. One, I live here, I know the most about it, and number two, Massachusetts is often held up as an exemplar of outcomes-based models. Massachusetts often brags that their test scores are the first in the nation, and the Common Core standards were basically built around Massachusetts's learning standards. I've been a teacher for 20 years in Massachusetts and an education scholar for 10, but one thing I haven't been is a school administrator. And the number one job of a school administrator since 2001 has been to make darned well sure that their school hits those test scores targets. And luckily enough, we have a Boston Public Schools administrator as our guest for this episode of the show. Dr. Liana Tuller has been both director of instruction and a small learning community leader. In a big school that's divided into smaller sub-schools, a small learning community leader is basically the principal of that sub-school. Dr. Tuller has worked in the Boston Public Schools since 1999. She has a PhD in sociology from Northeastern, she's a recognized expert in community-level trauma, and most salient of all, she's willing to chat with us today, which makes us very lucky. Welcome to the show, Liana. So what's your question? So you were an early proponent of accountability systems um, at the dawn of the outcomes-based era. You saw a lot of appeal to it, if I recall. What was the appeal that you saw in the institution of state accountability post-2001, because it hadn't really been there prior to that? What was the appeal for you? 
The appeal was accountability for schools, so schools couldn't be allowed to just graduate students or push students through who hadn't learned basic learning objectives. And was it happening frequently in your experience at the school where you worked? Well, I started teaching in 1999, which is the first year that MCAS began being required. Or maybe it was just being tested out that year, but it was required soon thereafter. MCAS, for listeners who might not be familiar, is the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System. It's the acronym for the state test that we have here. In my early years, it did seem like a lot of students were graduating from high school with very few basic skills. And so you saw MCAS as having the potential to, what, hold schools' feet to the fire? How would that result in students developing those skills for graduation? Well, the data about MCAS was displayed publicly. So part of the intention behind No Child Left Behind was that parents would know what kind of education schools were offering and would be able to move their children to other schools if the school that their child was at was underperforming. And that's when charter schools began to be opened, and many states offered voucher systems for parents to send their children to private schools and to religious schools. And it's when school choice began on a regional basis in some states. So the hope was that by creating competition between schools, all the schools would improve because they would all be competing for student enrollment and thus dollars. In addition, there were measures that would punish schools that were not making adequate yearly progress and the lowest performing schools could be taken over by the state. So schools had a lot to fear. There was also accountability for students and students couldn't graduate from high school unless they passed the MCAS and that's still the case. So did all this accountability for schools and for students result in improvements in teaching and learning? My experience at one school, which is an urban school, part of Boston Public School System, is that there has been a higher level of rigor, you know, that is expected in all courses, that teachers are held to a higher standard. It used to be that the measure of a good teacher was one who could manage their classroom well. Now that is just a minimum bar, and teachers actually have to ensure that students are learning. In addition, schools are held much more accountable for student support. There are other measures that schools are held accountable for, like attendance, graduation rates, dropout rates, scores on other tests, like the access tests, participation in advanced placement courses and exams, etc. And what were your concerns about this new shape of things when it came to students and how all this accountability affected them? For example, were there any times when you felt that students having to take the MCAS in some way got in the way of their learning? Sometimes. Some students would get really discouraged by the fact that they kept taking the MCAS and failing it. For some of them, it was because of a learning disability. Some students had to retake the same course several times to prepare for it. For example, I had students who took biology one, two, or three times so that they could be exposed to the biology material, but they probably could have taken other different kinds of sciences or more advanced courses if they didn't have to worry about the hurdle of the MCAS. Students who have specific learning disabilities don't perform well on tests, even if they understand the material, as might be reflected by their grades in class. There are a few workarounds, so students can get waivers or complete portfolio-based assessments, but the standards for being able to get those waivers or for being able to put together a portfolio are very high. So most students can't access those opportunities, and most students do have to pass the MCAT. They get many chances to do it, 
but there are still some students who pass their classes and do not pass the MCAT and do not graduate with their class. So there were a lot of opposition to that because it was felt that students were being punished when it was really schools that had failed to provide adequate education for them. Also, another criticism of the system was that schools began teaching to the test. There was a fear that they would sacrifice different kinds of subjects other than the ones that were being tested. So because MCAS was given in math and in English language arts initially, later science was added, it was felt that this might lead schools to sacrifice gym and the arts, social studies, other kinds of electives, anything that required critical thinking skills, joy, curiosity, and learning other than what was being tested in the test. And to some extent, I think that happened. I think some schools, especially charter schools, which have a higher bar to justify their existence, are forced to make sure that students pass these tests. So if we can back up a bit, um, you are far more conversant as an administrator who really has to stay on top of this stuff in the mechanisms by which the state holds schools accountable, by which the state evaluates and ranks schools against one another. I'm wondering if you can maybe walk us through what is that calculus like? What are the factors that the state considers? How does the state address those factors? Or however else you'd like to explain it. Each school is given a progress and performance index, otherwise known as the PPI. The PPI is found by awarding schools points out of total possible points and then norming the school's number of points against all the other schools in the Commonwealth. So for example, at the high school level, 12 possible points can be awarded for achievement, raw scores in MCAS, in English language arts, math, and science. Eight possible points can be awarded for student growth, which is as compared with students from across the Commonwealth who started in the same score band as the students at the school being measured. How much do their MCAS scores grow from 8th to 10th grade in comparison with other students in the same score band? Then 12 points are awarded for high school completion, four of which is for the four-year cohort graduation rate, four of which is for the extended engagement rate, in other words, students who may graduate after five or six years, and four points for the annual dropout rate. For schools with more than 10% of students who are English learners, four points are awarded for scores on the access tests, which are the English language proficiency tests. And then eight points are awarded for additional indicators. So four points for chronic absenteeism and four points for advanced coursework completion. The percentage of possible points is then referenced against other schools in the Commonwealth and the school is assigned a PPI, which is its percentile against all the schools in the Commonwealth. So by definition, 50% of schools will have a 50 or above, and 50% will have a 0 through 49, or rather 1 through 50 and 51 through 99. Now, is there a minimum bar, or does that system always set things up so that 50% of schools will be failing? Schools aren't considered to be failing if they're under the 50th percentile, but they are considered to be failing if they're 5th percentile or under. So schools are assigned a level, or at least they were until this past year, that may have changed. That exact language may have changed a little bit. And also a two-year average of the annual criterion reference target percentage is taken so that the past year's performance is averaged with the current year's performance. So let's see, just to answer your question, schools that are in the bottom 5% statewide, which by definition 5% of schools will be, are subject to takeover by the state board of education. Otherwise known as the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, or DESI as we call it for short here. 
Now I know this is you know not a realistic scenario, but theoretically, could all schools be doing a wonderful job? But there are five percent that are you know only doing a sort of wonderful job. Are they always going to be in danger of receivership, or is there a certain break point where that either happens or doesn't happen? Uh, well, we haven't been in a situation where all schools in the Commonwealth have been doing great by their students. And the PPI is very highly correlated with socioeconomic indicators and other risk indicators for districts. And unfortunately, schools in affluent districts, students have low quote-unquote risk factors, usually do very well. And schools in districts where students have a lot of risk factors, which include economic disadvantage or special education or being an English language learner, tend to do worse. And these factors are concentrated in poorer communities, uh, communities of color. And we haven't had a situation where all the schools in our commonwealth were doing well, in that all schools had high percentages of students graduating on time and low percentages of chronic absenteeism and high raw achievement on tests. So I'm sure that if all the schools were doing great, that the lowest 5% would not be in danger of state takeover. But because our schools are so tied to our stratified uh, society, we have not had that situation. So are these rankings helpful from your perspective as an administrator? I think it makes schools more cognizant, and we can't ignore students who are not coming to school, for example. We can't say, oh, we're just going to concentrate on the students who show up. We have to concentrate on all students. We can't just say, oh, this student is a special ed student, quote-unquote, a student with disabilities, so we don't have to make sure that they learn the material. We are held accountable for those students as a school, and we do have to make sure that they are in the best learning environment for them and that they can achieve at high levels. So I think that's a positive outcome. And have those students' outcomes improved, let's say, in maybe taking your school as an example, or if you have access to information about the state as a whole, have students in those categories seen an improvement now that teachers are held accountable for their achievement also? Well, in our school, certainly students with disabilities, English learners, constitute large proportions of our student body, and we have seen improvements. In our school, and I can't speak for the state as a whole, although I know MCAS scores have risen over the 20 years that they've been given, that they've been required, but one particular indicator that's been really hard to move is chronic absenteeism. So even though many efforts have been put forth to reduce chronic absenteeism, it's been very difficult. Is there anything this model of accountability fails to capture or captures in a a partial or incomplete way? Well, I can give you some polls that pertain to the school where I work. So the first one is that PPIs heavily weighted towards raw MCAS scores. And as I mentioned to you, raw scores in MCAS are highly correlated with socioeconomic status. There are many reasons behind that, but it does seem unfair that students, that schools in affluent districts well, almost automatically always have much higher scores. And students in districts like Boston will almost always have low scores. I think that a higher percentage of the points should be put towards growth. Um, And so the PPI also aggregates data from all of school students, even special populations for whom some of the indicators should not apply. So, for example, at Charlestown High School, 14% of students do not enroll in a diploma program. They're in a certificate program. They have severe disabilities, 
They spend often eight years learning academic and vocational skills. They certainly learn, and they certainly are exposed to important experiences that will help them in life, and we help them prepare for post-secondary life. But on their 22nd birthday, they age out of school, they receive a certificate of attendance, and they transition to adult life. They don't take the MCAS, but they're counted among the MCAS failures. For example, in 2017, Charlestown High School's math MCAS failure was reported as 21%. But of the students who were eligible to take the exam who were in a diploma-bound program, only 7% failed. Similarly, Desi reported a 15% failure rate on the ELA MCAS, yet only 1.4%, two of the students who were actually eligible to take the test, failed. In terms of graduation, these students do not graduate. They age out, they receive a certificate, so they're never able to be counted in our graduation rate. They're, they're still docked from our graduation rate, even though they're not bound for graduation. And, and that disadvantages schools that have programs, magnet programs, basically within the city for students with severe disabilities. And no one's pointed that out to the Department of Ed. That, that seems like it would be such a, an obvious concern. It's been 20 years. Has no one made that argument? Uh, I think they're aware of the, I think they're aware of that. But that doesn't seem to change the accountability score. Is that correct? That's correct. Huh. Here's another hole um, in terms of graduation. 33% of our students enter CHS as recent immigrants. Some of them come at 14 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old from another country. We have a SEI program that particularly attracts Spanish and Cantonese speakers, but we also have Haitian Creole speakers, Vietnamese speakers, Somali speakers, etc. Many of them need more than four years. In fact, almost all of them need more than four years to master both English language and demanding subject area requirements. So in order to graduate, they have to take the ELA MCAS. They can't do that their first year in the country. Often they come from a country where they've had limited formal education. But even if they have had a formal education in their home country, it takes a couple of years to learn enough English to pass the MCAS. So they are on a five-year program, right? They enter as ninth graders. They spent two years as ninth graders because in 10th grade you have to take the MCAS. And for students who enter as a new immigrant, it takes two to three years to know enough English just to pass the MCAS. So they don't graduate in four years. DESE counts them as failures when they graduate in five or six years, but uh, we disagree. We applaud their determination and their persistence, and we think that they're a success story for our school, but they're counted against us in our PPI. We also have a magnet program called Diploma Plus, which re-engages students from all over Boston who have previously failed at least two years of high school and are over age for their grade. They overcome enormous personal challenges to meet competency-based graduation requirements, they also have to pass the MCAS, but it often takes them longer, by definition, to graduate from high school because they enter our school or our program at least two years behind. Basically, that's it. We welcome all the students in our community. We are proud to be a school that serves immigrants, that serves students with disabilities, that serves students who want a second chance at education, but it brings our numbers down. Thank you. You've had 20 years of experience in just these sorts of situations. I don't know how often the Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed in Massachusetts invites people like you to the table, but let's say you were invited. Furthermore, let's say that you were given a carte blanche to change the system. How would you change it to plug some of these holes to make to keep the positives that you mentioned of accountability mechanisms in the state, but to shore up some of these problem areas? Well. 
One change that I would suggest is not to reduce school's performance to a single number, to a single index. Because although DESE publishes profiles of schools, and if people are able to you know, take the time to go online and look at these profiles and understand the data as it's presented, you can often dig a little bit behind those numbers and see where schools that are rated low may have real strengths. Most parents and most members of the public don't do that. They don't know about it, they don't have the time, they don't have the skills to understand the data, and a number is an easy shortcut. It would be better, in my opinion, if there wasn't one number, because then it's too easy to take that shortcut. And that number shouldn't be used to automatically punish schools who come into turnaround status or who, you know, they, we get punished by reputation as well. So if we are in the 14th percentile or 9th percentile, that means fewer parents will want to select the school for their children, which exacerbates the problems of having the highest risk students in the lowest performing schools. Selection bias is very real. So I wouldn't publish a single number. I realize that it creates a shortcut for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. I realize it provides a way to easily identify schools that may be in need of additional support. And yet I feel that DESE with all of the data manipulation tools it has at its hand doesn't need a single number. And I think it is to the detriment of schools like ours when the public has access to that number. So take out the PPI, one. Two, if there is an index, don't weight raw MCAS scores so heavily in it for the reasons that I already described before. Three, some of these other numbers, some of these other things that I talked to you about should be taken into account. If a school has a high percentage of students in a certificate-bound program, they shouldn't be counted against the school's four-year graduation rate because they were never on a graduation track. It punishes schools that serve those students and it also discourages schools from accepting those kinds of students or from creating those kinds of programs. Those kinds of programs should be equitably distributed across schools within a district and within the state but we know they're not so it shouldn't be counted against a school. Also students with a high percentage of recent immigrants obviously shouldn't be punished for having a lower four-year graduation rate. I think that once all the data is presented it gives a fuller picture of what schools have to offer. COVID-19, of course, is changing the game in so many ways for schools, and it's impossible at this stage to predict, you know, with any kind of certainty where it's going. But I'm curious, speculate wildly, do you think COVID-19 is going to alter these accountability structures? If so, how might it? Well, we know that 10th graders are not taking MCAS this year, and neither are 3rd graders and 5th graders and 8th graders, right? So these scores will not be able to factor into an accountability rating for schools next year. Graduation might be a little bit more lax than it has been in previous years. Students are given a little more time to do makeup work. On the other hand, it might be more difficult, and then that's in recognition of the fact that it's more difficult for students to learn online and to complete their work online, and also that students are struggling with many things outside of school. Some are ill, some have family members who are ill, some are providing childcare for younger siblings, some are working full-time when their parents have lost their jobs. So at least in our school, students are dealing with all of those things. Although students are still being held to the same graduation requirement, they still have to pass the same number of credits, students have a little bit of extra time to do that. There's been a lot talked about about how COVID and homeschooling is going to widen educational disparities because students who are primed and have the home environment that supports them and they're learning in the sense that their parents have high levels of education and can actually sit down and do the academic work with them and maybe working from home and 
don't have to go out to work, will advantage those students, and conversely, the students in the situation I described before will be disadvantaged. I just hope that Dessie will take this into account when determining any kind of accountability ratings for school in the future. Why did you become a high school administrator? Well, I wanted to have better outcomes for students, and I felt that I was, you know, that role suited my capabilities the best for doing so. You had been a teacher previously for eight years? About. What's the best part about being an administrator at your school? Well, we, I work with a really dedicated staff, and as an administrator, I come into contact with students a lot, and students are amazing, and they're great, but I would be able to have contact with them as a teacher as well. But as an administrator, I really get to work with the entire staff and kind of reap the benefits of their expertise and their learning. I have the opportunity to help form a team of adults who's all working towards great outcomes for students. And it's exciting. It's challenging. It's exhilarating. And, you know, you have the opportunity to make an impact in the school that I work in and in students' lives. And that's really special. Not all jobs give you that ability. Dr. Leona Teller, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your doubtless super busy schedule to appear on our program. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Not much I can say to follow all that, so... That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did... Please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. Then you get a treat. Here's this episode's education fun fact. Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was recently murdered by police, happens to be the most literate city in the United States. Per capita reading skills are highest among this city's population. Go Minneapolis teachers, and this just might explain how the protests that began there have so effectively opened up conversations about race and justice in the American media mainstream. Bye now.